This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Te Papa Hoora Christchurch Health Precinct holds its We're Talking Hoora Research Talks annually. It's an opportunity to showcase health researchers from Canterbury and their inspiring work to improve health outcomes for our community. This year, the evening of talks featured eight researchers discussing a range of topics across many health disciplines. This episode features Professor Don Hine talking about climate change and youth mental health, followed by Professor Martin Kennedy speaking about using genetics to understand eating disorders. All right, so I want to talk about climate change and youth mental health. And on this first slide here is a headline from a recent uh, article within the Guardian newspaper, so which is a favorite of uh, liberals and academics across the world. Um, the headline relates to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it really indicates that the window for dealing with climate change and climate change-related effects is closing very rapidly for us. And the predictions are that if we do not deal with climate change effectively, the consequences will be very, very dire. So we're talking about increased extreme weather events, droughts, floods, uh, bushfires. Uh, We're also talking about mass migration events where we have potentially millions not tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people that will be displaced and will be looking for habitable places to live, which can lead to massive political instability. So unless we take this problem very, very seriously, uh, consequences will be, unfortunately, very, very dire. It's also important to note that um, most national targets that countries have set to combat climate change are grossly inadequate. They are not fit for purpose. They will not meet uh, what is required to keep um, temperature rises below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, Climate Action Tracker has evaluated New Zealand's response to climate change in terms of policies as being highly insufficient. The same is true of North America, or, sorry, of Australia and most of the other Western countries. All right. So let's talk about who's concerned about climate change. Um, it turns out that there's massive generational differences in climate change worry. And it goes probably along expected directions. So at the one end, we have boomers who were born between 1946 and 1964. And in general, these older generations tend to be less concerned about climate change. On the other end, we have millennials and Gen Z, and their level of worry is substantially higher. Now, what's even more disconcerting, and this is based on research out of the University of uh, Pennsylvania, led by Janet Swim, is that over a 10-year period, anxiety amongst our youth is increasing at quite a high rate, whereas concern amongst the older generations is actually 
decreasing. So we're getting this divergence in anxiety where our youth are very, very concerned and those individuals that exert a lot of power over our political systems and are making decisions on the part of society are becoming less concerned with this issue. It's very, very troubling. All right. Climate change and mental health. So climate change is associated with all sorts of unfortunate outcomes, as I mentioned, including extreme weather events such as flout, floods, droughts, and bushfires. So this is a summary from a systematic review of a systematic review. So within science, we often do uh, empirical research. Once there's a sufficient number of studies, someone will come along and do a systematic review. But it turns out in this particular case, there's enough research out there that we're now doing systematic reviews of systematic reviews. So this is a systematic reviews of previous 13 systematic reviews. And again, the conclusions are very, very clear. When it comes to heat waves, heat waves are associated with increased hospital admissions for mental health uh, issues, increased rates of suicide, exacerbation of existing mental health problems, sleep problems, and fatigue. People who are exposed to droughts and floods, this is associated with increased rates of psychological stress, PTSD, anxiety, depression, psychotropic medication use, and alcohol consumption. So basically the conclusion from the systematic review of all the other systematic reviews is that exposure to extreme weather um, events related to climate change is bad for your mental health. Most of this research has been done on adults, so my colleagues and I in Australia wanted to see if we can see the same types of effect with younger adults, with our youth. So this is a study that we conducted in 2019 with colleagues from the University of New England in a small regional uh, town called Armadale is where that university is based. Uh, we had 746 Australians aged 16 to 25 years old and we administered a Qualtrics online survey immediately after the black summer bushfire season of 2019. Some of you who were not in Australia at that time may remember that time because the smoke was so intense in Australia that it came all the way across the Tasman to New Zealand. I was living in Armadale during that time. That was just before I relocated to Christchurch. And you would walk out of your front door in the morning. You could not see more than four feet in front of you. The smoke was so thick. Every breath that you took, you felt like, oh my God, this is taking another year off my life. It was absolutely a horrendous time. In addition to the smoke, Within Armadale, there were times when there was no safe way to escape. The whole town was surrounded by fire, and in order to get north or to the coast or south, all the roads were blocked. Everything was burning. It was an absolutely horrific time. In this particular study, we were comparing respondents who had direct exposure to bushfires with those without direct exposure. And we compared those two groups of individuals on a standardized and validated instrument called the DAS, which measures levels of depression, anxiety, and stress. This is what we found, perhaps not surprisingly. 
uh, amongst our group, a group of youthful respondents, those that were directly exposed to bushfires scored significantly higher on depression, anxiety, and stress compared to those who were not directly um, exposed. Now, that's all to be expected, and that's completely consistent with what we're finding with the systematic review of the systematic reviews. But what surprised us is that the effects were actually quite small in terms of effect size terms. So we're going, what's going on here? So we went back to our sample and we also asked them about exposure to other types of stressful life events, such as losing your job, being assaulted, uh, having family conflicts. And we wanted to compare the effect sizes on mental health of being exposed to droughts, floods, and bushfires to these other stressful life events that our youth encounter on a regular basis. And this is what we found. You can see here on green, in green on the left-hand side of your screen, the effect sizes associated with being exposed to the bushfires, droughts, and flood were quite low relative to some other categories. The highest category in terms of predicting negative youth uh, mental health outcomes was family conflict. Financial problems was also quite high. Being assaulted was quite high. And I can't read the last one because my glasses are right here. Just a second. Having your own serious illness. Okay, so the point that we're trying to make here is that we do have statistically reliable results in terms of being exposed to extreme climate-related events on mental health, but those effects are actually smaller than some of the other things that youth encounter on a more regular basis. So again, we're asking, what's going on here? Why are we getting smaller effects for things that are, represent potentially an existential threat to humanity to other things that people are dealing with, are quite common, and people are dealing with on a daily basis? So we're speculating at this point, but one thing that we think might be going on is that when there's a drought, when there's a bushfire, this is something that threatens a, the collective. It's something that we don't experience by ourselves. It's something that we experience as a group. And there could be some type of buffering effect that's going on here that brings people together. They feel like they have the social support to deal with this problem that they're facing. Whereas other types of problems, like having problems within your family or having financial problems, these are often more individualistic and personal. And when they're personal, often they're not shared and people try to deal with them on their own. And without that higher level of social support, they may, may lead to higher um, negative outcomes in terms of mental health. All right. Now, the last thing that I want you to do when walking away from this talk is to conclude that Oh my God, climate change isn't important. We should be focusing on all these other issues. This is uh, one of my favorite diagrams that I have on my um, screensaver just to remind me that we always have to think of a larger, more integrated perspective in terms of designing a society that will allow people to flourish 
while living within the planetary limits, those ecologi the ecological ceiling that allows us to live sustainably on Earth. So this is Kate Raworth's donut model of economics. What Kate is arguing is that we should strive to live within that green section. There is a sweet spot for creating a well-functioning society where we are both environmentally sustainable, so we're not exceeding any of those planetary boundaries in terms of excessive fresh water use or climate change, but at the same time, we are providing a solid social foundation that allows each of us to have the opportunity to flourish and live a rewarding life. Thank you very much. Uh, kia ora koutou. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and uh, nice to see so many people on a cold night with all the challenges of parking around this part of the town. Um, I'm going to focus, as Sway said, I'm a geneticist. I'm not a clinician. I'm not a eating disorder specialist. I'm a geneticist. So my passion is looking at DNA and trying to understand how DNA contributes to the origins of disease, but also how it can be used or how understanding DNA can be used to improve treatments. So I'm going to focus largely on work that we've done in an international consortium called Anorexia Nervosa Genetics Initiative, down the bottom of the screen. So most of what I'm presenting is from that study that, uh, in fact, we did a few years ago, but I'll tell you what we've also been doing in the meantime uh, at, right at the end. So why would we want to study the genetics of eating disorders? Uh, people are sometimes surprised when I say eating disorders, particularly anorexia nervosa, have a lot of genetic underpinnings. Obviously, a lot of environmental factors feed into risk of of anorexia nervosa, um, but definitely it's a very heritable condition. So if we look at the DNA, you know, when you think about the brain, it's quite a black box. And in terms of mental disorders, trying to understand what is happening at a fundamental level in the brain is very challenging. But if you can find gene genes that impact on your risk of these conditions, then you can start to understand the biology that sets you up to, um, to succumb to one of these illnesses. So it's sort of about getting at the black box of the brain. But for eating disorders too, the treatments are are really not that great. You know, we need to do a lot better. There are no medications that have been developed specifically for eating disorders, uh, and our other treatments are really not that efficacious. And, and um, you know, they're tough on patients, they're tough on families, and they are, and they are quite hard to access as well. Uh, and eating disorders, there are, there's a lot of mythology, a lot of uh, false information uh, that can, uh, can be um, out there in the public domain. And I think by researching eating disorders in this way, well, we're, partly we've realised this from the community that we've contacted and brought into our studies, uh, we're starting to destigmatise and produce you know, more factual material. And of course, eating disorders affect a lot of people, a lot of individuals and a lot of families. So they're important to study. So here's some eye candy. Um, uh, how, do we, how do we do these sorts of studies? It's really a numbers game. Um, each of the genetic influences in these sorts of conditions is actually tiny on its own. They're hard to find. There are many of them. There are probably hundreds, if not a thousand or so genes that contribute to the risk of anorexia nervosa. Um, and uh, so in the ANGIE study, we had 17,000 people with anorexia nervosa from around the world, including over 500 from New Zealand, who gave us their blood and their DNA and a lot of data in order to do this study. And we had 50,000 people who were controls, who didn't have eating disorders. And you can study them by, uh, you can obtain the genetic information you need using a gene chip. And I've just shown that on the left-hand side of that slide. Uh, and the gene chip interrogates or looks at about half a million sites through the genome. 
And those sites are places where we know there are small variations in the genome that may contribute to, to various conditions. And just to show you what a, a real Manhattan plot looks like, that's the purpose of that previous picture, we call them Manhattan plots. This is a readout of that data from all of those people. And uh, it's really, if you look along the bottom axis, that is the genome stretched out from chromosome one on the left-hand side to chromosome 22 on the right-hand side. Wherever you see a skyscraper, that marks a place in the genome where there is DNA that somehow increases your risk of having anorexia nervosa. So it's marking places that are important in the biology of this condition. And so we can go from this information to genes. We can find genes that are important. But to be honest, most of these skyscrapers are marking places in the genome that regulate many other genes. And so we can go through to networks of genes. Um, the other thing we can do with this information, and I'm, Again, we have eight minutes, so I, can't, I can hardly show you everything we, we can do. But one of the really interesting things we've done is to take, you can take that package of genetics that, that I showed you on the Manhattan plot, and you can say, if this is a profile of the genetic underpinnings of anorexia nervosa, how does it compare to the genetic profile of other medically important traits? And when you do that, we find anorexia nervosa genetics is closely correlated with a number of psychological traits, like depression, neuroticism, obsessive compulsive disorder, and so on. Now, psychologists and psychiatrists would not be terribly surprised by that, and actually even family members may recognise that that seems to be part of the condition. And perhaps the most um, exciting and important part of this analysis is when you start to look at metabolic um, traits. So these are heritable things. We're looking at the genetics. We see many correlations between the anorexia nervosa genetics and the genetics of things like fasting insulin levels, leptin levels, leptin's an appetite hormone, uh, risk of type 2 diabetes, a metabolic disorder, obesity, body mass index, and so on. So lots of metabolic correlations. So what this tells us is that anorexia nervosa is as much a metabolic condition as it is a psychological one. Um, and that really changes the way you think about these things. I'm going to flash through, having said I won't tell you everything we do, I'm going to flash through quite a few of the things that we can do. So I've talked about the going from DNA to, find, to the Manhattan plot, finding regions in the genome that highlight genes or gene pathways and the correlations. Um, but we can also look at gene networks. And so we can, from the, the genetic data, you can infer which cells in the brain or maybe elsewhere in the body um, are the site of action of these gene variants that change regulation of genes. So we can think about those. We can see the cells in the brain or we can identify sets of cells in the brains where the effect of these genes is most likely to occur. And as I say, it may not just be the brain, it may be in other places in the body. And then by having that sort of underpinning of biology, we can start to think about novel ways or novel ways of getting at uh, better treatment or perhaps you know, at least understanding the condition from a biological angle uh, and trying to conceive of new, new and better treatments. And some obvious ideas are perhaps some of the drugs we already use for metabolic disorders could be repurposed and maybe they would be useful in something like anorexia nervosa. Or maybe we can think about precision nutrition that targets some of these sets of genes and perhaps can improve um, uh, treatment of anorexia nervosa. So these are interesting ideas. There's a, there's a lot of work to be done yet. But to be honest, the study, the ANGIE study, we completed and published four years ago. Um, and uh, we haven't been sitting in our laurels since then. Uh, we have been engaged in what is now going to be the world's, the ANGIE study was the world's largest study of anorexia nervosa. And New Zealand had a significant role in that. In the EDGY study, Eating Disorder Genetics Initiative, 
We are a full partner in a four-country consortium, and this is by far the largest eating disorder study uh, ever accomplished. In March this year, New Zealand reached its target recruitment of 3,500 people. So 3,500 New Zealanders with anorexia nervosa, bulimia, or uh, binge eating disorder have trusted us with their DNA from spit kits, from saliva this time, uh, and all of their data, of which there is a vast amount, uh, to bring together in this, this huge international consortium. And we were delighted to host our American and Australian guests in Christchurch on a beautiful day a couple of months ago uh, at the Art Centre um, here and show off Christchurch uh, as we planned uh, the analyses that we'll now be doing. Well, we're funded for one more year on the study, but I think the analyses will be going on for years to come, and we're also planning a follow-on study to this. Um, so, Amihi, uh, not just to our team, there are six of our team in that picture at the Arts Centre um, and our Australian-American collaborators, but a big mihi to Professor Cindy Bulick, who actually spent some years living in Christchurch, was at University of Canterbury, so she loves this part of the world, and that's a key to our uh, ongoing long-term collaborative relationship. Uh, and Jenny Jordan, uh, and so, so Cindy leads these studies from the American, from University of North Carolina, and also to Jenny Jordan, who's my co-director. And Jenny's a, a clinical psychologist, and so we have a combination of a clinical psychologist who really does understand eating disorders, and a geneticist who at least understands some genetics, uh, plus um, funded, uh, very fortunately, from the National Institute of Mental Health for the current study and for the previous study from the Philanthropic Foundation, the Klarman Foundation. Uh, that's it. Thank you. Appreciate your time. You've been listening to We're Talking Haora, a series of research talks given by researchers from Te Papa Haora Christchurch Health Precinct. <laughs>